For those of you who are cheering us on online here, you, uh, you missed all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. They cover up the baptismal and uh, with like three seconds to spare. And I kept thinking, I am not working here without a net. <laughs> and, and I think today's message will explain why I'm not going to do that. So uh, several years ago, my, my daughter and I got a chance to take a, a trip to Iceland. And um, as I do on trips like that, I, several weeks in advance, I kind of create this list of places that we want to visit, things we want to see, things we want to eat. <clears throat> and um, I had done that for this trip. The hard part was everything was in Icelandic, which I thought was very inconsiderate of them. Um, there's a lot of consonants in Iceland, lots of consonants and lots of letters. All the words are 14 letters or larger. Uh, I guess when you're cold, it sounds like you're teeth are chattering or something. It was just unbelievably difficult. So what happened is when we were there, kind of like every street and town and every place became Farfignugan. Now, do you guys, anybody remember the 1990 VW commercials on Farfignugan? So we were like, you know, take the third street down, take a right on Farfignugan. We take two more stoplights and then we take a left on Farfignugan. And that's what we were always looking for was Farfignugan. And that was our way to kind of cope with the foreign language there. Um, so one day, one of our big adventure days, we're, we're driving, and, uh, and we're coming to the next place on, on the list, um, and it was, we, we drive into this fishing town, and it's sort of like <laughs> we came to the end of the street, and there was just fishing town, like a parking lot, and really nothing else there except a bunch of guys that looked like the guys on the Gordon's box which wouldn't, wouldn't be one of the places I'd think, man, I really want to see a bunch of guys in yellow slickers. So, so I knew we were not where we wanted to be, but everything was in Icelandic in my notes, so I couldn't remember where we wanted to be, and I just looked at my daughter and said, well, this is an Icelandic fishing village. We're going to move on to the next stop. And she looked at me and just said, yes, Dad. Um, so we started driving down the road to the next stop on the list, and, and um, if you don't know much about Iceland, it's, it's really just kind of like a volcanic plain. They do a lot of movie films there for, like, desolate. So if you see some movie film and you look desolate, you go, probably Iceland right there. But as we're driving down this road, there's the ocean is on the left. And there was this, like, kind of a road. And at the end of the kind of the road was kind of a parking lot. I mean, it was really kind of not particularly developed. And next to the parking lot, or on the other side of the parking lot, there was like, all you could see were guardrails, some handrails. And I thought, we didn't spend much time in the fishing village. We've got some time to kill. Let's see what that thing is. So we drove on down there, and we got to the end of the place. And, and as we got there, we pulled up, got out of the car, and this is what we saw. Now, I know it's cliche to say that a picture doesn't grasp what you really see. But the beauty of the ocean dashing against that rock, against those rocks was just absolutely breathtaking. It was just, you know, this raging, the raging North Sea against these, these volcanic rocks. And you know it had happened for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. And we stayed there a long time, taking pictures, taking videos, and really just getting mesmerized by what we saw. It was captivating. Then finally we went on our way, 
And as we got back to the hotel that next night, and I kind of went back to my notes, I looked at it, and there was the pictures of all that ocean. And I just shouted out to my daughter. I said, that was it. We found it. That was the place. That was Farfignugan by the sea that we wanted to see. Well, I don't want us to miss our destination today. <laughs> and since I'm leading, we need a little help to do that. <clears throat> so I want us to get to where God wants us to have, God plans for us to go. So the title of today's message is A Holiday Journey of the Heart. So this Thursday, we celebrate Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving has a long and storied history of overeating, football, and family politics. Well, I really don't care if you don't miss that destination. However, as the body of Christ, we have a much more purposeful reason to celebrate Thanksgiving. We have a biblical mandate, if you will, and it's found in our text for today, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I want to do a little better job of managing our circumstances, our, our, our time as we go through, managing our journey as I did in Iceland. And so what I want to do is to kind of give us three points that we can use to map our way to our destination. First, rejoice always. Second, pray without ceasing. And third, give thanks in all circumstances. So I want that place, I want us to get into that place in our hearts where we can do those three things. That's our destination. So picture life, picture your life. And in that, in that life, you can do this, th these three things all the time. You can rejoice always, you can pray without ceasing, and you can give thanks in all circumstances. So that's the journey we want to make. That's where we want to arrive. So to help us with that destination, help us to fulfill that call of God, I want us to take us past three places that are going to help us to keep us on track. And the first one is God's protection. We want to be thinking about God's protection. Second one is to think about God's provision. And the third one is to think about God's people. If we can navigate those three sight lines, we will arrive at our destination. So the first point is God's protection. How do we rejoice always? How do we pray without ceasing? How do we give thanks in all circumstances? We train our hearts to see God's protection. We train our hearts to see God's protection. So we're going to start here um, by first looking at when we see God's protection. So I need you to reach down, grab your seat, imaginary seatbelts and buckle up because that's what I should have done when, we started, when, when I started this story. So I'm going to tell you a story that many of you don't know, and I think actually my family just kind of knows a piece of this story. So I'm trying to think, 10, 8, 10 years ago, we were taking a vacation, and uh, that vacation was like we usually go somewhere in the woods, and, um, and, and we, were, we went to a river to go swimming. And in that river, there were rocks and there were some rapids and there were a couple of waterfalls. And uh, I had been there before, so I was pretty comfortable swimming and I thought, this is a great place and some of the rapids, you can slide down the rocks. And so, so we went out in the water and we're all swimming around and you know, 
my wife is there closer to the edge with some of the littler kids, and I'm out a little, little bit deeper with my, my son and, and some older kids. And, and um, before we know it, we're in a really deep part of the river, and the river current is carrying us faster than we can swim. And, and where we were was there was a set of rapids and then this piece of the river, and then a part of the river that I hadn't mapped out but we were soon coming to find was a waterfall. And, and before you know it, my son, my, my, one of my grandchildren, and I were clinging to this rock. And, and we were, I don't know, a, a very short distance to going off this waterfalls. And we're holding on, and I'm looking at my son, and he's looking at me. And, and, and we know there isn't, we've got one shot at getting out of this river before we go over this falls. And, and so the three of us are clinging, and there's this kind of tree trunk, tree limb that was hanging out. And uh, it, was a, it was hanging off the side of the, uh, of the, of the river. And, and it might have been reachable. We thought it was reachable. And so my son looks at that and he says, I think if we push off and swim really hard, we can grab that. And I looked at him and I said, okay, I'm with you. Let's do this. It looked really, really far away. And it looked like too, too big a jump to make. So I thought to myself, I'm, I'm hanging on this rock and he's here and my grandchild's there. And we're all holding on. And rocks that are always wet have a tendency not to be, you know, like have handholds or grips or anything like that. This thing was really slippery. And so I knew what I was going to do once he pushed off. I was going to shove him. And I was going to hold on for all I was worth. And then if they made it, great. So we did that. And he goes, one, two, three. And I just held onto the top of that rock and I just shoved with all my might. I couldn't hold on to the rock. And so uh, this sounds really heroic on my side. It wasn't. You know when you're in the ocean and you kind of travel down that, that, that road, you, think, you look up and there's your umbrella, and the next thing you know you're 50 yards from your umbrella? Well, my job was to keep an eye on the umbrella. And I knew I had gotten us to this point, and it was my mistake. I also knew that the years we had swum before, it's, it's swam in the rivers, Whew, messing up my grammar here, um, we, we had had a lot more rain this year, so the current was carrying us. So all I thought was, this is not going to happen. So I hung on and I shoved with everything I had. And they made it. And I don't remember going over the waterfall. I don't remember, I don't think I lost consciousness. Don't think I lost consciousness, but I don't remember. All I know was I went into the water over that, over that waterfall, and then the next thing I knew, there was a violent impact with my chin. Just jammed up. I felt my, my teeth, you know, clipped together. And then the next thing I know, and again, I don't think I lost consciousness. I'm on all fours on a rock that's like halfway in the in the waterfall at the bottom. And my first thought was, okay, I didn't lose consciousness. Then I took my tongue around my teeth to make sure that they were all there, and they were, miraculously. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, 
made it. You know, this, now, this wasn't Niagara Falls, okay. But I went back and looked just to check my math. It was 10 to 12 feet. It was a, it was a good-sized falls. And I thought, you know, I, th I think I'm okay. So I climb down off the rock, and I start wading into the shallower part of the river to get the other side, because no one could see me. So I'm thinking that nobody knows where I am. And, and I started to come up, and I see, and again, the hand of God, we're just going to see, all, is all over this story. I see the, this, this woman with her two kids coming down off this path with this, she had this gigantic backpack. And, um, and finally, I get up, and I can see my family. They weren't even looking for me. I, I was like, I just went over a waterfall, and you didn't even know. And nobody got it on video or anything. So finally, they look over, and I just wave like, I'm okay. They're clueless, right? And my wife looks at me, and she goes, like this. And I looked down, and my chest was covered with blood. And the lady who's coming with her two kids is a paramedic on vacation. And I swear, all she had, she had no snacks for the kids, no towels. All she had was her big paramedic kit. And she's got me all, you know, taped up and everything like that. And, and you know, again, I, so, so that, was, that, was, that was the trip. But she says, you really need to go get stitches. So I'm sitting there, and, and my family didn't realize I had gone over a waterfall and said, well, we're going to let the kids finish swimming for a little bit, and then we'll go ahead and get the stitches. <laughs> this is traumatic. <laughs> but that's okay. I'll sit here on the sand and just wonder. So I went and got the stitches, and I can't remember what it was, three or four stitches in, the, in my chin. But it was just, you know, when you get a cut on the face, it bleeds a lot. But after the stitches, something happened. After the stitches, I got caught into this loop, this what-if loop. You know, what if you hadn't shoved hard enough? What if you hadn't made it? What if your family has a memory of this place, but that's where they lost you? What if all three of you had gone over? What if you had survived and one of your grandchildren had perished? I couldn't get out of that loop. It just kept going over and over again. What if, what if, what if? So I, I, couldn't, I didn't know how to change that. And then I suddenly thought, what if, but it didn't? What if, but God didn't forsake me? What if, but he didn't leave me? What if, but God protected me? God helped me end that loop by replacing it with thanksgiving. God helped me end that destructive loop by replacing it with thanksgiving. But what, what happens when he doesn't? What happens when you don't see his protection? Now, some of you guys know the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch woman when the Nazis invaded her homeland in 1940. Her family were devoted Christians, and they started hiding Jews literally in the walls of their house. Eventually, they were discovered, and Corrie, her sister Betsy and her father Casper were arrested. Well, her father was in his 80s, and he didn't last 10 days in. Uh, uh, he didn't last 10 days after the arrest. But Corey and Betsy were placed in a concentration camp, and Betsy 
died within nine months. Corey survived until the camp was liberated. So did God protect her? She lived. Did God protect her father? He didn't. Her sister? She didn't make it. Some would say, no, God didn't protect them. But let's withhold judgment until the very end. Now, I want to read a relatively extensive passage from her book, so please bear with me. But in 1947, she went and visited, she went to Germany and told her story and the story of God's forgiveness. And this is, her, this is, her, her, this is what happened when she went and told that story. Because um, uh, one of the camp guards came up and introduced himself. Now, he was in front of me, hand thrust out, a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me, but for, for all the cruel things that I did there. But I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I stood there, and I could not. Betsy, Corey's sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her, to her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? I could not have been many seconds that he stood there with his hand out, but it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the difficult thing that I had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still I stood there, coldness clutching my heart. Now listen to this. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. So I woodenly, mechanically raised my hand, thrusting it into his and as I did, an incredible thing happened. The current started at my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then his healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. I forgive you. For a moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. If we look at life as linear, logical, as keeping score as we've always been taught, Corey was not protected. But if we look at it from a God-centered, gospel-centered view, as we've talked about the last three weeks, as we talked about all through the series in Daniel, we see that Corey was never out of God's hands. And on April 15, 1983, Corey was delivered from this imperfect world 
into the hands of the Savior to whom she so desperately, desperately clung during those difficult days, just like her father and her sister before her. So let me come at it from a different angle. If we see life as being placed on earth to be comfortable, if we see happiness as the primary goal of our lives, God dealt the Ten Boom family a very, very bad hand. However, if we see our lives as something larger, as part of something larger, if we see it as our lives belonging to someone else, then our sufferings take on a whole new meaning. Our sufferings become part of a broader mosaic that glorifies God. I can, I can easily illustrate this with another example. There once was a man. He was born to an unwed mother in an occupied land. After gaining some regional notoriety, he entered the criminal justice system. He was arrested. And after an unjust trial and an equally unjust appeal, he was convicted and immediately abandoned by his friends. After a night of torture, he was executed at the hand of the occupying army. Now that, to me, sounds like a big, fat waste of a life. But to those of us who were born 2,000 years A.D., we know better. Jesus isn't a fleck of tile in that mosaic. Jesus is the mosaic. So as we continue our journey to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks in all circumstances, and we're questioning God's protection during suffering, try to take at least one more step backwards and place your hands to trust the artist to choose your place, to protect your place in God's glorious mosaic. And when we get to meet Casper and Betsy and Corey Ten Boom, I have a feeling that they're going to have a very similar view. So our second point, God's provision. How do we rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances? We train our eyes to see God's provision. <clears throat> so let's start at looking at the year before and the year of the very first Thanksgiving. The Mayflower set sail on August 15th of... You all fail. 1620. <laughs> and landed. I was going to have like a big blank up there, and I thought, now I'm going to torture you guys. And landed 66 days later, not in sunny Virginia, as was the plan, but in, in, in an in a, uh, abandoned Indian village in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. So have you ever had that thought when you went on vacation and you thought, I did not pack for this weather? Well, that was them. They were totally prepared without provisions or dwelling, and the group of what they called themselves as saints and sinners was cut down by almost half down to 53 during that first winter, down to 53 from over 100 that first winter. Only five of the 19 women who made the journey survived the first winter. The next season was better. The non-farmer pilgrims were aided by names that we've become familiar with, Swanto, Massasoit. And we know the story, big harvest, big feast, easy time to give thanks. But what happens when it's hard to see God's provision? What happened the next year in 1622? Well, that story is less told. In 1622, the harvest was very thin. 
Governor William Bradford did all that he could to negotiate with the Indians for more corn, but by the end of the winter, another 12 colonists died of starvation and disease. So the year after the first Thanksgiving, did God withhold his care? If I make plans on vacation and it rains or I get sick, does God no longer love me? Is he punishing me in some way? If I get laid off or I lose a loved one, is God judging me? Has he withdrawn his provision from me? Well, I have good news. Jesus answered these questions directly in a Q&A format in Luke 13, and then he followed it up with a parable also in Luke 13. Now, I'm going to read just the Q&A in Luke 13, starting at verse 1. There were some present at that time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they had suffered that way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Were those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than the others who had lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So let me quickly paraphrase this passage. As punishment for some unrecorded slight, uh, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate has several villagers in the region of Galilee put to death. As a further insult, he takes their blood and he mixes it with the blood of the sacrifices, which would be an abomination. This is incredibly offensive to the Jews and big news at the time. This was purposeful. The second instance that was noted was accidental. Back then, there was no OSHA, no building inspectors, no fire code, and a tower in the neighborhood of Siloam outside of Jerusalem gave way, crushing 18 people. Those were the situations that the people were asking Jesus about. And I encourage you in your own study time to dig into um, Luke 13 because there's such rich theology and such deep uh, layered nuance. It, it really is very insightful. But let me quickly summarize for our purposes. Here Jesus does for us what we need done. He takes a complex topic and he gives us the nuts and bolts and the grace that we need to be to found in that, those situations. Jesus makes two important points in this exchange. Bad stuff happens because we live in a fallen, imperfect world. This is not the world that God made. The second point he makes is bad stuff happens to remind us that we need a savior and we need to stay close to our savior. Bad stuff happens because we live in a fallen world and bad stuff happens because we need to be reminded that we need a savior. Governor William Bradford from the Mayflower was one of the original saints who came over in the Mayflower and he knew suffering. Not only did Bradford spend those, those, those winters in Plymouth, but he sailed in the Mayflower with his wife Dorothy who never set foot in the new world, tragically falling overboard, dying in the freezing water within sight of land. Bradford wrote much later during those times, about those times, great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulties. Both must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. Where did Bradford get his courage from? The whole endeavor of which he was a leader had one purpose, 
They wanted to find a place where they could worship God as they best understood the Scriptures, as the Scriptures dictated. Bradford understood Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my strength. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth, as imperfect as earth is. Bradford saw his sufferings as part of that mosaic. So our last point, focusing on God's people. How do we rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances? We train our hearts to see the blessings of God's people. So as the pastor who takes the point over small groups, I get a front row seat to watch what it looks like when God's people are there for you. And I have some observations to make. We are stronger Christians, husbands, wives, young adults, and teens when we are knit together with God's people. In the last 60 days alone, I've seen countless occurrences of free babysitting, house cleaning, meals provided, encouragement offered. We've spent time meeting together to strengthen our marriages, to understand the scriptures to better, to bear each other's burdens. You, Grace Community, you brothers and sisters, you guys are a sacrificial, generous, kind, and caring church. And I say that from the bottom of my heart. Watching you all serve each other is a tender, faith-building reminder of Christ's love for each and every one of us. You, church family, make it easy. You make it easy to be thankful for God's people. But there's a but coming. But we're not always kind and caring. What happens when God's people let us down? We belong to a church that's full of people. We are imperfect, sometimes insensitive, selfish human beings. We are sinful and imperfect. We want to be there for each other, but sometimes we're left alone. Now, there are two verses that I want to go through to remind us about God's care for us. Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord himself goes before you. He will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Matthew 28.20, teaching them all to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. I am with you even to the end of the age. Even when things are hard, he will never abandon us. He will never abandon us. He knows what that, that's like. During the most difficult night and next day of his life, Jesus was betrayed, he was denied. He was abandoned by his best friends. Finally, in his last hour, he was forsaken by God. He was forsaken by God for us so that we will now never have to be forsaken or rejected by God. Let me say that one more time. He was forsaken by God for us so that we will now never have to be forsaken or rejected by God. That, that 
is friendship. So let me summarize that last point, put a bow on it. We are thankful to God because God's people remind us of the love and the care of God. We are thankful to God for God's people because they remind us of our faults and our need for a Savior. And we are, we are thankful to God for God's people because even when they're not there, he is. So I told you three. We're going to get one last step on this journey. <clears throat> We've talked about the difficulty of life. I'm hoping you're planning on having a better Thanksgiving. But uh, I want to push that even farther. Have you ever been in one of those life-altering trials? You remember those all your life. They test your resolve. They test your faith. They test the very fiber of your soul. Joseph in the Old Testament was sold into slavery by his brothers. Daniel was told, eat this food, interpret this dream, stop praying, or you will face one of the most difficult deaths, most violent deaths you could ever experience. You're hanging by a thread, and the thread is fraying to nothing. So let me give you three chords that we, maybe we can wind these together and something to cling to. First thing to hold on to is this is not our home. We were made for Eden. We were made for beauty, for walking in the coolness of the day with God. We threw that away. But Jesus came down here into this garbage heap and rescued us. And he rescued us because we didn't throw Eden away. We threw ourselves away. He didn't come to rescue Eden. He came to rescue us. Number two, as bad as the situation is, it's still not as bad as we deserve. As bad as the situation is, it's not nearly as bad as we deserve. But Jesus took the punishment for our treason against heaven. And that third chord, no matter what your Thanksgiving table looks like on Thursday, you can find love. Even if your table looks empty, you are not alone. Actually, even if you worked at it, you could not outrun the love of God. So we've arrived at our destination. But George, you forgot the main idea. Rookie mistake. Probably knew that was going to happen. Um, actually, I, I left it for last. So the big idea is I can rejoice, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances because of God's love. George... What about God's protection, his provision, his people? You left that out. No, no. What I left out was God's faithfulness, his kindness, his holiness, his patience, his omnipotence, his tenderness, his majesty. It just isn't enough time. A lifetime isn't enough for us to wonder at the greatness of God. So let's look back on where we've been. We began this journey together in preparation to celebrating Thanksgiving. And we're seeking how we can grow in our ability to rejoice and always pray and be thankful. So what do we do? Well, let me call the band up. <clears throat> I want to give you a couple of practical ideas. Okay, the first one is going to sound a little Sunday schoolish, But bear with me. Okay. Today when you go home, I want you to go get a piece of paper. Okay. And I want you to fold it into fours, like I have here. And at the top of it, I want you to write 
Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I had a little trial and I spelled Tuesday wrong. Bear with me. Just want to be transparent. Okay. Then under Sunday today, I want you to write a situation in the last year where you've seen God's protection. And underneath that, I want you to write a spot, write something that's happened in the last year where you've seen God's provision. And then under that, I want you to write some place in the last year where you've enjoyed God's people, where you've been blessed by God's people. Then on Monday, I want you to do the same thing. Tuesday, I want you to do the same thing. And Wednesday, I want you to do the same thing. And then on Thursday, I want you to open this up. And I want you to read through it. And I want you to pray and thank God. And just be thankful for the different ways that you've seen God at work. And if you can get your kids to do this and do it as a family at the Thanksgiving table, that'd be awesome. So that's one practical way. I want to give you another practical way. I'm not sure that we could do anything better in the way of growing in thankfulness to God with God's people than to share communion together. If you didn't get the elements, I think we're going to have, I'm looking for, for ushers and I don't see any. If you didn't get the elements, it looks like you're out of luck. Um, we'll take, we'll, in a minute, we'll get those, we'll get those distributed. Um, just picture God's people letting us down. But um, here at Grace, we celebrate open communion, which means that if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want to celebrate with you. If you haven't, that's fine. We're glad you're here. And we just want you to kind of just, just take in all that you've heard. So what is communion? The word itself means sharing. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we get to share in this symbolic meal together. We get to share with a purpose. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul relates a story of the first communion. The bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us. And the juice represents the blood that Jesus shed for us. These elements are a poignant reminder that we share together in God's sacrifice for us. We share that together as a body. We couldn't pay for our own sin, so he sent his son to pay for us. So let's take the cup and the bread together.